James 5, and um, leading up to it, just being the last uh, week, we'll be in James. We went through it on Sundays and Wednesdays. Many of you maybe didn't catch all of it, but in chapter 1, it, counting all joy in trials, he talks about it with patience, enduring temptations, and the flow of thought, having a real faith, looking ahead to eternal life. And this is what fits so well with Psalm 57. I didn't know that. I don't know if this is just random how it comes together, but it's a good one to keep while we're studying this morning. Um, and then being doers of the word, not just hearers. James talks about that, and that justification by works, not faith alone. Not works alone either. And uh, so it's uh, obviously making sure, and we, we dealt with that as we studied through. Chapter 2 dealt with partiality and favoritism. These guys were uh, taking notice of the rich and giving them the higher uh, positions, and the poor they were kind of pushing aside. And he says, thus they're becoming judges with evil thoughts towards the poor and the lowly brother. And they said they had faith, but were failing to meet the, meet the basic needs of the poor that were with them. And then chapter 3, the destruction caused by the untamed tongue. Wisdom from above compared to the earthly wisdom as a result. And the flow of thought then right into chapter 4, well then where are these quarrels and fights coming from among you? And um, it's uh, coming from their hearts, from the lust and the covetousness and their pride. The adulterous love, he calls it, um, that they have for the world, which puts them at enmity with God, because obviously the the world is at enmity with the Lord. And so if they were chasing after the things of the world, well, that makes them an enemy of the Lord. And they're adulterous because they were his, they are, we are his bride. And that they should then humble themselves rather than speak evil of and judge one another. And it's funny how we can always hear a Bible study and think of somebody else this applies to, but the truth of it is, it's for each one of us. And we talked about that many times. People would want to point the finger right away and say, I know who needs that. Well, start in the mirror, and if there's anything left after that, then maybe you got some time for something else. But um, Chapter 5, as the flow of thought continues on, he talked about the rich um, in verses uh, 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. For your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. They have heaped up, or you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, they cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Now you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury and you've fattened yourselves or fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and you have murdered the just and he does not resist you. In chapter 1, James had already began talking about the rich, uh, speaking about the patience in the midst of trials because apparently many among them were poor. Um, the temptations and all, the poverty that was among the brethren and he contrasts the poor who, uh, and the lowly in their glory of exaltation. Well, because they're heirs of the kingdom. They're heirs of heaven. And he contrasts that with the rich in chapter 1 because uh, the riches are going to fade away. And so will the rich man fade away. And it says right even in his pursuits. In other words, while he's heading on out to do the next big deal, it fades away. And um, in chapter 2, he warns them not to show favoritism because these same rich guys over them, uh, rich over the poor, don't favor, favor them because it dishonors the poor who God had chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. There may not be a lot of kings and a lot of kingdoms around here today that we look at. There might be a few countries in the world that have kings still. But there are very many wealthy, wealthy people. And they're above the law, as far as I can tell, especially lately. And, you know, as they say, Lex is Rex, well, you know, it's more Rex is Lex. And if you know what that means, law is king or the king is law. And in this country, for many years, we've had the law as king. And it's starting to turn out that maybe some of these more wealthy have a little bit more of the, the rule over the law these days. But that being said, it's interesting because uh, I have a, 
uh, cousin and my brother, second oldest brother, have been looking into these ancestries and the DNA, and they do all that stuff like that, and, and the connections. And as it turns out, on my mom's side, she was a Kissling, and going back, now I can't use that password anymore. Um, and now it goes, <laughs> just thought of that. <laughs> all right, well, somebody's listening, I'm sure. Um, but uh, as it turns out, you go back far enough, thousand years or so, there's European royalty, believe it or not. Now, I'm not expecting any letter anytime soon that I'm next in line for the throne because since a thousand years ago, there's millions of, of descendants and there still needs to be a little you know, connection with the DNA yet. They're still waiting on, on hard evidence there. But you know, you, you know, everybody goes, wow, that's interesting. And my brother you know, at the end of it says, so humbly says, well, there's at least a million descendants in line for the throne before we are. So um, back to humility. Back to being humble, he said that. It was just great. And, um, you know, so no earthly kingdom, though, or any amount of wealth or luxury or pleasures or desert island uh, is going to compare with what we have in eternity for what lies ahead. It says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor has even entered into our imaginations what God's prepared for us. So who are the heirs to the glorious eternal kingdom of God. In chapter 2, verse 5, we can look at that. And we've talked about it already a little bit, but there's a little bit of a qualifier. It says, Listen, my brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him, it says. To those who love him, who are heirs? Well, those who love him. Going back to Matthew 5, and we'll look at verses 1 through 12. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, uh, Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Well, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger, and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, and we're going to talk about this this morning too, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what? Well, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are they when are you when they revile you. And he goes on, and in chapter 6, we see in chapter 5, the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, and the persecuted for righteousness. Well, they're the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, whose future is that glory. Now in verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, he talks about this. Now in context of this, we're talking in James about the rich that oppress. And it says, um, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And this is the first of our, our thinking about where this is all going to take place. And it's really James gets us back to the matter of the heart. And that's where it needs to start, and that's where it needs to continue and end. And we're going to try and establish that so that we can establish our hearts. What else does James say about the rich? And back in James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, They oppress you. They drag you into court. They blaspheme the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why are they showing them respect? You know, why, why are they looking out for these guys when you know, this is their, their attitude? Now, these brethren among the 12 tribes scattered abroad were struggling with all this. Out of their hearts, you can see in James, is starting to come this lust and this envy. They're, they're watching these guys travel to these cities, and they're starting to look at that, and they're saying, well, I, I want to do that too. And some of them were among them as brothers, or at least posing as such, or just in the, the synagogues with them as these uh, 12 tribes are scattered about. But in chapter 4, he says, come now. Chapter 4, 13 and 16 says, you don't know what tomorrow holds. You're making these trips. You're, you're, you're coveting these guys who get to travel around. Well, you have no idea what tomorrow holds. 
And so who does? Well, God. So let's just see what he has for us today is the wisdom there. And let's leave it at that. Do what we know we have to do. But instead of arrogance and boasting, you know, on all of your plans and achievements, just do what we have that's been given to us today, he says. And he actually says, if you don't, if you don't do what you know to do, well, that's sin. And, you know, we think so often of how hard it is. You know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to do this? I'm praying about this. I'm praying about that. I think if we were to just step back and just think for a minute, ask him to show us what he has set before us for that day and do that, then he takes care of tomorrow. He takes care of what our plans are going to be. Um, so many people, you know, we... Well, let's start. It brings us to that uh, first six verses, but one thing for sure we see there is there will be justice. I, I don't know. I've never seen rust on gold or silver, but I imagine it will. And uh, not only that, he's talking about them storing these things up in their last days. And as such, that rust, it says it burns. It literally will consume their flesh like fire, like acid, if you will. And so I don't know what that means, but certainly it's going to happen. And certainly the Lord promised that. And people are looking for justice these days. And there's, there's these uh, cultural wars, if you will, and there's these, uh, you know, stick it to the man, which, you know, we're sitting here talking about the wealthy. And, you know, so many people think it's the guy down the street who's just trying to have a business, and it might turn into something for him. But there are wealthy beyond wealthy, the wealthiest of the wealthy that, that we don't even see or hear. And, and we're seeing these days just how much influence they have and how much they can say what's going to take place. And we're getting a glimpse of that, and uh, we hope and pray that the Lord would come and deal with them. And if not, that we could deal with it here and now in our country and around the world. But they defund, they defund whoever they want. They censor whoever they want, anybody in opposition. They steal the courts by threats, by fraud, by deceit. The judges have become, you can't trust, you know. They've murdered to protect themselves from facing opposition and persecution or prosecution for their crimes. And right here in these last days. But it says, what is coming in verse 1? Weeping, howling, that misery, the corrosion that burns their flesh like fire. God's not blind. God sees. He's not deaf. He hears the cries of those that are being, um, you know, their, their wages are being stolen. Uh, there's, you know, we think of just how things are in America, but there's the rest of the world, many parts of the rest of the world, for example, Haiti. And um, we know that uh, there is poverty and that there are those companies that will go into these nations and they'll take everything out of that nation and leave nothing left for the people. And the Lord's going to judge. He's not going to let that go. Psalm 10 shows us a bit of the Lord's heart in all of this, if you want to turn there. Psalm 10 kind of good because earlier in the year we were going through the Psalms and it just got to Psalm 10 and I wasn't sure what we were going to do with that. As it turns out, this fits perfectly. <clears throat> it says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord, and why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. Look at their hearts. They're not even looking for the Lord. God's not even in any of their thoughts. He, he way, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight, they think. And as for all his enemies, he sneers at them. And he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. They don't see anything coming on them. His mouth is full of cursing, like James says, deceit and opposition. Under, under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor catches the poor when he draws him into his net. And so he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. And he has said in his heart, God's forgotten me. He's, he hides his face. He's never going to see. 
And so the psalmist says, Arise, O Lord, God, lift up your hand together with us. Don't forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account, but you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you, and you are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. So they're gonna, he's going to see it all. And they're going to know it all until he finds nothing left in them. And the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of, this, out of his land. And Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare the heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. And then he goes on in James back to Verses 7 through 12, there's a therefore. We see all this about the rich. We see all this about uh, what's going on. And, you know, I need to clarify because, you know, you say all that and it could bring a lot of condemnation on somebody who the Lord has simply blessed with wealth. And that's not my intent, nor is it James' intent. He talks about what to do with it. And that's up to every man in his own heart and conscience before the Lord to do what he's given him to do, take care of what he's been given to take care of. Um, again, this is not for us to sit and point the finger at anybody. Uh, this is for each of us just to take the heart for ourselves. The Lord has given um, his works to do from the foundation of the world for your brother just and your sister just like he has for me and you. And so, we, and what does he say? You know, don't, don't worry about your brother and what he's doing. I can make him stand. And so those that may have wealth, um, you know, it's for you to use as the Lord has given wisely. It's not wealth that's the sin. It's the pursuit to, to all ends at all cost of wealth. It's not money that's a sin. It's the love of money that's, that he warns us about. That's the root of all evil. So that being said, there's a therefore in verse 7. And it's there because we're talking about these guys and, and the persecution that's coming and, or that has come from them and the, and the suffering and, and the poverty. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. And you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord at hand, is at hand. And the context of the rest is, you know, do not grumble against one another, brethren, and lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Therefore, patience. In chapter 1, he talked about patience already. He talked about it produces um, endurance for our faith. Um, the, the faith is what's being tested, and the testing through various trials and as we let it mature, as we endure, as we continue, we continue in that direction to be mature and complete, lacking nothing, he says, while we're suffering, in that suffering. And, you know, if we don't, well, there will be parts missing. I mean, if we find the, the escape, you know, and we, that's our tendency. But what he's saying is, you know, you're suffering and you can't get out from under it, you know, endure it with the hope and the joy that he's talking about is that hope for eternal life. You know, Jesus suffered on the cross. And why? Well, for that hope, for that glory, that joy that he had and what was set before him. And for us, and that joy and that glory that's set before him is when we go to see him as well. It says there's great joy in heaven for any that gets saved and when a soul gets saved. But he says that is, uh, you know, there'd be parts missing. We're not complete if we don't allow these trials to bring us to maturity. If, they, if what comes out of us is, is complaining and, and anger and bitterness towards the Lord, well, that's not going to allow us to be complete in our faith. Um, so how long? It says, well, until the coming of the Lord. How long do we endure? And he is coming. If you don't see it these days, you know, for the first time, 
um, we see since the Roman Empire that there is a global, all-world, all-inclusive governance going on. We, we're seeing things fade in our individual rights here for the sake of these globalists who are, and I'm not here to talk politics or anything like that, I'm just saying, do you see how close we are to the end? And if ever there was a time to establish our hearts and, and to, to do it, isn't it now? If there ever was a time to be looking for his kingdom above all else, isn't it now more than ever? That word establish is the word make stable, place firmly, fasten, affix, strengthen, make firm, make constant, and confirm. That word heart is cardia. And, you know, it reminds me when we were in Israel that uh, if you go to the old city, what they used to call uh, the main street in these cities was called the cardo because it was the heart of the city. And in, in uh, the old city of Jerusalem, at the very head of it is where the Temple Mount Institute has placed the, the menorah that they intend to use when they resume temple uh, worship. And they have everything there behind glass, and it's huge, you know, this uh, menorah to burn without end, you know, is what it was always intended. But they've got that all starting. And as you walk down, it continues to go down into the Arab quarter where all the shops and the stores are. Well, that's the Cardo. That's where everybody goes to uh, get to the heart of the city. Now, in the spiritual sense for us, and it's the fountain and the seat of the thoughts, our heart, our Cardo, our Cardia. It's the passions, desires, the appetites, the affections, the purposes, the endeavors, and with regards to the, the thoughts and how we have our control over it and what we do with our own hearts, the seed of sensibilities, not thoughts necessarily, that's up here, and that's with our mind and our reasoning, but what we do with our thoughts to make sensibilities out of them and emotions, this comes from our heart. More than anything, again, the book of James has brought us back to where all this needs to happen, and that's in the heart. My Bible says that my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's slippery. Who can know it? So what it needs exactly more than anything else is to be established. It is to be firm and stable. Jesus said earlier today, we looked at blessed are the poor in heart. Well, where does your, you know, where your treasure is? He says, there will your heart be. These are the things that Jesus identifies that are up to us. You know, how do we purify our hearts? How do we get there? How do we begin to lay up treasure um, in our hearts? And so what we want to do is look at Luke chapter 8 and um, verses 4 through 15. This is the parable of the sower. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar. For those of you who are not, the Lord spoke in parables to his disciples because it was given to them to understand his disciples but to those that were seeking for righteousness their own self-righteousness sake you know it was hidden from them they didn't recognize their sin but for them he says in verse 4 and when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city he spoke by a parable a sower went out to sow his seed and as he sowed, some fell by the way, wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. Well, some fell on thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it, and choked it out. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, yielded a crop of a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, hear, ears to hear let him hear. And it says, you know, his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? He said, well, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. And this was the prophecy of the hardness of the heart of the Jews when the Messiah would come. So that, because of that, not that we should boast over the Jews, as we learn in Romans, but that we rejoice as Gentiles, now it comes to us. Not that the, the root can't quickly receive back the original branches, and that's a study in the book of Romans. And as you know, when Jews can certainly get saved, come back to the Lord and all. But for now, 
He's speaking to them in parables because they don't see, they, they don't recognize their own sin and how they rejected him. And so the explanation in verses 11 through 15, he says, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, though. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. And the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out, and it's choked out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And they bring no fruit, it says, to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word of the, uh, with a noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. You know, and how does the devil, well, first of all, the seed is the word of God, it says, and then we can see from it the soil is our hearts. Um, it's funny because I wasn't even thinking about doing this. Uh, we were talking in the prayer room earlier, but in the Old Testament talks about breaking up the fallow ground of our hearts because we have, you know, when a field sits for a winter or even a two or three, it'll, the rain will come on, it settles it out, it washes down, it hardens. The sun bakes it, it hardens. Um, it uh, continues to get harder and harder on the top until it becomes tilled. You can, you're not going to plant anything in hard soil and have it grow. And there might be some special things you can, but until you, you till, until you work up that soil so that the moisture can go in, so that the roots can go down, you know, you have to take the opportunity if you feel hard-hearted in anything, to plow and dig up that fallow ground. Soften your hearts. It's ours to do. You know, he says for us to do that. Um, so how does the devil steal the seed? Well, his lies. And some will believe his lies. How do, de how do uh, temptations destroy? Well, it's what James talked about earlier in the book of James, being drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Desire conceives, gives birth to sin. Sin grows instead of the word taking root. And sin matures. It says it brings forth death. So how does uh, you know, the seed going to handle that when we're allowing all these other things? How do thorns choke out the word? Well, there's only room in our hearts for one master, Jesus said, right? If there's two masters, you're, 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 there's going to be a battle. You can't satisfy both. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to try and serve both of them, and it just doesn't work. There's only room in our hearts for one master, either God or the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And the roots are not going to grow if you've got all these thorns in there and choking everything out. These are things that we have to do. There are things only the Lord can do in our hearts. You know, it says he turns hearts, but you know what? We have our responsibility to plow up that fallow ground to let the word. Now, what is a noble and good heart, that good soil? The word noble is, simply means genuine, that holds on. And that's what he's saying, right? They keep it. It says the noble guy keeps the word. He puts his, you know, grabs it and hangs on to it. Same thing we need to do in our heart. You don't just then all of a sudden start entertaining the lies of the enemy and say, well, I wonder what kind of makes sense there too, you know. And maybe there isn't something so bad about the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or you know whoever you want to go to. And just like that, now there's other things going in and beginning to uh, influence. You're, you're not just holding on to the word of God alone. And so that noble uh, means genuine and you hold on to. You don't let go of the word for lies. You don't let go of the word for temptations. Does our, does our flesh still feel that tug uh, to, to you know, the temptations that come on us as long as we're in this life? We're going to feel that. But do we let go of the word and start pursuing that? Do we remember what the fruit of sin is and what the Bible says about sin? And whether we stumble, we know that we can also remember in the word that we can return to him, we can repent, we can confess our sins. And then uh, riches, are we just going to let the word be false so that we can pursue whatever riches we want? Well, so what's a good soil? What's a noble and good heart? Well, it's one that's genuinely trying to hold on to the word of God. In verses 7 and 8, it says, What gives you and me an established, stable, firm, and constant heart? Well, knowing and keeping the word, according to this parable. 
And then in verses 7 and 8, what's our motivation to be? Well, it's the coming of the Lord. Amen. And, um, you know, we may hate the loss of our liberty in this country, but with all that deception, and, you know, like I said earlier, you know, we need now more than ever to have established hearts rooted in the Word of God first and foremost. And it's not, not, uh, there's nothing else. We also need to be rooted in grace. You know, James, oftentimes people feel it as kind of being a legalistic book. And um, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, you know, he, Hebrews also, the book is written to the Hebrews, to the, the books uh, in the New Testament, James writing to the 12 tribes, and uh, I believe Paul writing to the Hebrews. Um, you know, they, he says to them, you know, don't feel that you need to keep the law, the Old Testament law, in order to be saved. He's talking about keeping the, the grace as a stabling, steadfast, uh, keeping your heart firm, and not of works of the law. Now James is also taking that to the point, well, as a result, then we have works, works and deeds that are a result of our faith, that are born out of a true faith, a real faith. But in Hebrews, he's talking about being established, your heart's being established in grace and not to let that uh, balance escape us. So, um, we're still talking about patience in context. Verses 9 through 12, back in James. It says, do not grumble against one another. It's interesting. That's the first thing that we tend to want to do. You know, We forget where we were as believers when we first got saved, where we instantly mature, where we right there on the best of the doctrine and the best of the teaching, and the we write all over the the doing every good thing and and um, walking uh, in perfect maturity and not making any mistakes. Well, then why would we groan? And that the word grumble there means to to like moan and groan with a heavy sigh. And he says against your brother or sister in the Lord. Really, it's because he's talking about patience and suffering, and we lose patience sometimes with, with one another. And, uh, but the, the point I'm trying to make is we all have a lot of growing to do. And to, so, to, to look at one another and start to groan, you know, come on, are you going to ever get this? Or whatever your motives for growing. He, don't do that, he's saying. And as such, you know, he, he gives us examples of... Um, of that, but more than anything, he says, judgment with, is without mercy to those who show no mercy. And so, remember where we were when we first got saved, and remember where we might have woke up this morning and what we needed mercy for. And so, why would we groan towards our brother or our sister? And so, don't he says, do not grumble against one another, lest you be condemned. Wow, forgetting that mercy. Notice what he says: Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now. That has more of the idea of, yeah, he's right there ready to come in, but also has the idea of he's got his ear to the door and he's hearing what you're doing. You know, he sees. We talked about that earlier. But the prophets were, in verse 10, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. And you know, I didn't, he gives us an example of Job, but prior to that, you look up all the things said about the prophets. Um, insulted falsely accused, and if this rings true in your lives anywhere, take hope, persecuted, driven out, beaten, scourged, stoned, crucified, murdered. May we never see this in our lives, but if we do, you know, there's grace, and we have to keep our eyes on the things to come like Jesus did when he suffered. He's our example. We have to keep our hearts steadfast in the word, lest these things come upon us as well. And, um, you know, may this never be, but, you know, there are parts of the country where, or parts of the world, and our country, I think, where it does take place, where Christians are persecuted, where Christians are taken out, uh, where families are taken away from people who preach the gospel. Um, and for those who hold to the truth and won't bow the knee to whatever other false religion or God or government, or soldier is pointing the gun at them. Job, he says in verse 12, 
going back, if you'd like, to Job 40, uh, maybe we'll talk about that as, a little bit as well. Job chapter 40, right before the Psalms. Um, in the first chapter, it talks about Job, that he was blameless, upright, feared God, and he turned away from evil. He used to go out every morning and sacrifice all the sacrifices necessary for each one of his kids, just in case they partied too much the night before. It literally says that in chapter 1. Unless they sinned while they were um, having a feast. Um, This is Job. This is his heart. He loved, he feared the Lord. Um, He was blessed with sons and daughters and many sheep. He had many cattle, many camels, donkeys. He had great wealth, and it says actually none were greater. And then he lost everything. He lost his health. And he suffered greatly to the point of death. And, you know, God would not allow Satan to kill him or to take his life. And all that, Job did curse the day that he was born. And in fact, he wanted everybody in the world to take that day off their calendars. Can you imagine? That might have been February 29th, I think. That must have been that one. But it's, he so much despised his date of birth because of all the suffering that he was going through. More than anything, and guys at the men's prayer meeting were going through Job, and more than anything, you know, he just wanted to be heard. He wanted, he wanted an advocate. He wanted a mediator. And his friends were just telling him, Job, it's your sin. He says, I, I know I'm a sinner, but I need someone to, this is, put yourself in my shoes, he's telling him. Could you endure this? And um, the suffering, that he ends up in a pile of ashes and dust, scraping his sores with potsherds. And his so friend, so-called friends saying it was sin, but he knew that God only knew. Job only wanted an advocate or a mediator, someone to bring truth to his suffering and hear about the severity of his pain. And So James uses Job, though, I summarize that, because he uses Job as an example of God's compassion and his mercy. And if we look at verse... Uh, Verse uh, 1 of chapter 38, it says, uh, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he's speaking about Job and his friends. And he says, Now I prepare, uh, now prepare yourself like a man. You know, you know stand up and uh, I'll question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you even understand, you know, and he goes on and goes through chapter 38 and 39, describing all the things that are just too wonderful for anyone to know, too awesome, too marvelous, things that only God could know, only that he, only he could do. And there's so many good, you know, points there and, and uh, that it's good to see, but for lack of time, going to uh, chapter 40, he says, moreover, Lord, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Talking to Job. And Job answers and the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to say a thing. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And the Lord continues to answer him. And then in verse 1 of chapter 42, Job answers the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, Lord, and I, that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I utter what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, Lord, and let me speak. You say it said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. And I'm all proud and I'm ready to take an oath because I can do it all myself. No, (laughs) right? He says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, he says. You know, he's, he's suffered, but he had perseverance. He didn't swerve from his loyalty or faith. When James talks about being very compassionate, the Lord on Job, he says, pitiful and very kind and very merciful. 
Now that word merciful in James is used only one other place in the scriptures, in uh, the New Testament. And it's Luke 26 where he talks about be merciful as your father was merciful. And that kindness in that same way, pitiful to one another. At the end of Job's suffering because of his perseverance, and he was staying loyal to the Lord. He did not curse the Lord. He cursed the day he was born and all, but he didn't curse the Lord. His wife wanted him to you know, give up and die, Job, and he would not. It's, it's at the end of his life, uh, and James points this out, that God will be there. And we only need to have that same kind of patience and that same kind of faith. And notice he said, he's vile. I have no answer. I put my hand over my mouth. I utter what I do not understand, and I abhor myself. And so moving along in James, do you think Job is ready to go and take an oath and ready to say, gee, I know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, and so I'm going to take up an oath here and, and be all proud of what I'm going to accomplish. And earlier he's talking about in chapter 4 how they travel around and make plans. Well, here we are with Job in verse um, 12, is it? Above all, brethren, do not swear either by heaven or take an oath uh, or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. And notice it says again, lest you fall in judgment. So the Lord's ear is at the door while we're grumbling against one another. He says, don't do that, lest you fall into judgment and condemnation. And he says here, don't make promises that you don't know that you can keep. You know, there's, we're not talking about the vows of marriage or anything like that. You know, those are vows that we can keep. We just stay. We just stay. That's all there is to it. And um, only the Lord knows how good something's going to be until you stick it out to the end. And that's the vow that we take with marriage. And there might be other vows and commitments. You know, the Bible talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers if you're going to go into business or even when it comes to regarding marriage. You know, you don't enter into such a covenant, if you will, um, with an unbeliever. Well, what's that going to lead to? You're going to be tugging in the opposite direction and staying at war with one another for the rest of your lives um, if you're going to keep that vow or you're going to end up breaking it. So what does he say, though? Well, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Much, anything more than that comes of evil. Isn't that what the Bible says? And so, and also, lest you fall into that judgment, and so it goes back to what we saw before. Maybe it's best just to see what's set before us today and do what we know that we're supposed to do because everything else is sin. And it also goes back to putting a bridle on our tongues, not being quick to take an oath. So verses 13 through 18 begin to deal with prayer. Book of James. As we wind things down, James is kind of winding his things down, not for the study, but for the book of James. We'll be here a little bit yet. Um, I got till next Sunday, right? Is that what Paul said? <laughs> um, is anyone among you suffering? Verse 13, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with uh, oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for, or on the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the, heaven gave, the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. He's already been talking about prayer a little bit. If you look through on... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, he talks about asking the Lord for wisdom, but they were asking with the wrong motives. In chapter 3, he talks about our tongues, and he's talking about blessing God, but that's just not fitting if that same mouth is cursing men who's made in the, in the image of God. And in chapter 4, he's, he's saying they, bought, they just stopped asking God altogether because they, they wanted to spend it on themselves. You know, They stopped asking because they weren't getting what they wanted anyway. And the immediate context leading up to that is the flow of thought through 
verses 7 through 12, and that still is we're talking about patience. We're talking about suffering. And so he says, is anybody suffering? Is anybody cheerful? Is anybody sick? Now, I had to jump to cheerful when I first read through this because, and we talked about this a week or so back on a Tuesday night, but in the midst of all this, he's talking about it cheerful. I'm going, who is listening to all this and being cheerful? And, uh, but there were those, what it means basically is good spirits, joyful, and really more than anything of good courage and being encouraged is what that word cheerful means there as they translate it. And, you know, maybe these are the ones that were receiving the encouragement of James, taking the joy in trials with patience. These are the ones that were receiving the encouragement to be enduring in temptations and seeing the good and perfect gifts that the Father of lights has given that come down from him and seeing that the rich faith of the poor are the ones that are going to inherit. And um, to be judging by the law of liberty, we talked about in James, they're seeing that. They have a kind of mercy that triumphs over judgment. These cheerful ones do the word, not just hearers only. They operate in that pure, peaceful, peaceable wisdom that he talks about in chapter 3. And they humble themselves and they see God's grace. They know that there's one lawgiver, so they're not judging one another. They know that it's the judge who saves, who can save us. And so they're not judging. They're not quick to do that. And they have that blessedness of knowing the right thing to do, and they're doing it. And then they see the dealings of how the Lord deals with Job and his compassion and his mercy. But what does he say? You know, and, and we all we all fall short. You know that. And yet... If there are those that are cheerful, you know, many times you see that on their face. Sometimes you see that in the the people who might be a little older. There's people that I that I look at in the faith that I've gotten to know later on, and there's smiles on their face. There's cheer. The only time they become sober and serious is when they're praying for somebody else and they're suffering. And um, and it's just a joy to know that there's a a a cheerfulness that comes along just you know confessing if we have to and then getting back to doing what we know we're supposed to do what are they to do it says let them sing praises not make them you know we're not going to make sure point at somebody say you better be singing well no if you can't maybe come around to it but um it says let them and now notice from chapter 3 this is how they use their tongues you know where does it come from well it's coming out of their hearts and now they're singing, and it's that sweetness. It's that um, sweetness of singing. They've taken correction and repented, maybe. They're putting aside all the filthiness. They're not judging each other, and they're letting their yay be yay. You know what? You can begin to sing. You can begin to lift up your voice. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's no reason we can't open up our mouths. And, um, you know, not coming from our mouths, the bitterness and the poison of bitter envy and the jealousy and the quarrels. You know, here are these, these souls that are cheerful. And there's many examples of prayer throughout Scripture. And, uh, but more than anything else, we have to know that prayer is personal. Jesus said to go into your prayer closet, and where you pray there, God will reward you openly. Because it's a one-on-one. It really is. I would pray and hope that, that everything we have here, our two-way conversation with him, the time we spend with him, and the waiting for him to bring things to mind, our giving him our requests and our, pers- uh, our petitions, and that he draws near to us as we draw near to him, why would we avoid that? And I can only pray and hope that it's not religion, that it's not an obligation, and that you guys recognize that, and more than anything else, that you draw close to him and have a one-on-one. Now, there are... Uh, scriptures and wisdom for those that pray together as a group. And we were talking earlier about men's prayer meeting. Ladies get together and pray. You maybe have your families that get together and pray or your friends or your groups. And it might start out with a card game and end up in praying. You know, there's there's many ways to get together with the brethren and be like-minded. But that really is the key. Doesn't he say where two or more agree on something? And you pray and you lift it up. He's going to grant that, do that thing. And he's going to hear you. 
Doesn't it say that blessed are the brethren, you know, when they dwell together in unity? Um, it's pleasing to God when we're like-minded and we lift up our voice in prayer. When we have a singleness of heart, that's pleasing to him. He says it's an abomination to God those who sow discord among the brethren. So we should pray together, and we should pray so all can agree and have an amen. You know, if you're going to pray for a brand new Cadillac, I'm going to go, okay, I want to agree with you, but I don't know that I can because can you handle it? Uh, you know, maybe I can't. I don't know that I can, or maybe it's a million dollars or something like that. Nothing wrong with Cadillacs. But pray a prayer. You know, when you pray together, certainly we lift up our hearts and we confess our sins. And, you know, we've got brothers in the fellowship that pray for their kids and families that have been broken and praying for, for that reconciliation and restoration and things. And certainly those are, those are good desires. We can agree with that. We can say, yes, amen, Lord, to that. But if people are praying a selfish prayer, you know, I, I can't say amen to that. I can't agree with that. Well, I don't know what the Lord is going to do there and all. And that's just a simple point. When you pray, you know, pray such that all can agree and say amen when we pray together, when we sing together, praising God, well, that's our gift to him. He hears us. He's blessed by that. And we're showing our praise and worship to our loving God and Savior. Making known his wonderful works in our lives, well, that's our testimony to the world, right? All of this is born out of a relationship with our God. If it's just a religious practice, you're letting yourself get ripped off. So what's the difference between those who suffer in verse 13 and those who are sick in verse 14. Now, it simply says to those who are suffering, we'll pray. It simply says to those who are sick, well, call for the elders. Now, you've got to remember who's, who's the one who's doing the calling here. There's not some police force out there running around looking for sick people, and they're going to run jump on them and start praying for them. And we will pray for those who are about it. But there is, uh, it's up to the person who's sick. And maybe some people just don't necessarily want visitors when they're in such a situation. Uh, but they might call for prayer. But it says, call for the elders to come. And uh, anyone you know, who can come to pray will come who suffer. But those might be, he's talking about those that are stricken to bed. And that's why he's calling for the elders to come um, and come visit them. But notice it says, what are the results in verse 15? Well, there's restoration, there's healing, and there's forgiveness of sin. He's talking about if there be any sin, they will be forgiven. Well, it's possible what he's getting at here is that the illness, and the reason you're calling for the elders, is maybe this sin, or maybe this illness is a result of sin. And so he says, what are you to do with that? Well, you know, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another. And he gives us the example of Elijah. And if we were to go to Kings, 1 Kings 19, and we'll spend a little bit of time in, in chapter 16 as well, it says he was a man with a nature like ours, just a man like any of us. So 16 verse 29. And backing up a little bit, uh, before we run into 17 a little bit, is, is the context of, of why he shows up on the scene. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab shows up, the son of Omri, became king over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria, well, 22 years. And now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of uh, Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, in which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made a wooden image. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And in his days, it says, Heel of Bethel built Jericho, and he laid its foundation with Abarim, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segeb. He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord prophesied, and this is in the book of Joshua, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. 
And you can read that. When Joshua took down Jericho, he said, if anybody puts this back, it's going to be at the cost of his own son and uh, his own life. And um, 17 is when the Lord brings Elijah. So the Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord lives, the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And then he says, get away from there and go hide by the brook Chirinth, which flows into the Jordan. And so we see that at the time Elijah comes on the scene, well, it's because there's this great sin going on. It's something nobody can ignore. Um, it's not something that people are maybe speculating is going on. No, it's right there in front of He's setting up temples. He's setting up idols. He's setting up you know, uh, vile images. And so his life, Elijah's life, is prophesying against Ahab. In chapter 19, we'll see Jezebel comes on the scene. He's defeating the prophets of Baal. He's fed by ravens. He's worked miracles. He's raising the dead. He stood between the rocks when the Lord passed by with a great wind and shattered the rocks. And he heard that still small voice after all that. And that was the voice of the Lord. And, uh, and then he was taken up into heaven with a chariot by a chariot of fire. He appeared with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration and again during the tribulation. James wanting to simply make the point that he was a man just like us. In 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 through 10, we see a little bit of that. What's James talking about? Well, it says Ahab and told Jezebel all that uh, Elijah had done with his, her prophets and that Baal. And I mean, her middle name was Baal, wasn't it? And uh, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, Go let the gods do to me and more so if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time, one of those prophets that were killed. And when he saw that, he arose, ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness beyond all that and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life. For I'm no better than my father's. Well, what's Elijah like that James is talking about? Well, he's afraid. He ran. He's fearful. He's alone. It says that, you know, as far as he can tell, he's the only prophet left in the land. You know, but looking for something to be done about this sin. You know, he's, he's looking at that flagrant wickedness of Ahab. Ahab thought it was a trivial thing um, to worship Baal, provoking the Lord. So what's Elijah say, or what's James saying to us about sin and prayer and suffering and patience? Well, he says, Calls, call the elders. Um, my question is, well, to myself and all of us, I guess, what do we or what should we expect from the elders themselves? Well, he's talking about Elijah being a man just like us, no better than anybody else. For ourselves, well, aren't the elders the same? Just men like, you know, Elijah, um, no better than, in, than our fathers, no better than anybody else. But, but we can't abide sin. And that's what James is talking about. He's saying if there be any sin. And, um, you know, if that's what puts you in your situation, maybe that's why he's saying call the elders. They're going to say, you know, here's what the Word says about this. And, and is, this might be how you got yourself in that situation. And, you know, can, uh, who, who alone can forgive sin? You know, we can forgive our brothers, we can forgive our sisters, but who can forgive sin? Just God, right? Only God alone can forgive sin. Jesus said that the Pharisees knew, had to know that he was the Lord because only he could forgive sins when he healed that man. And um, who can show you from the word, though, that your sins are forgiven? 
Well, an elder better be able to. He should be able to. He should know the word. Well, but any of us can, right? Anyone. But, a, but an elder better know how to do that. And who can pray for you? Well, you know, anyone. But an elder or somebody who calls himself an elder better have the faith and have his righteousness in the Lord. And so, you know, he can have, uh, anyone can pray, but maybe call the elders because they might know and have their righteousness in the Lord. And that prayer will avail much. We don't pray in our own um, righteousness. We don't pray in our own, you know, talking last Wednesday about Psalm 51. You know, David had to confess his sin. Lord, impute to me righteousness. You know, and he, he had nothing in and of himself. Is there any special forgiving power and healing power in an elder? Well, of course not. So what's the key? Well, he says, just ask for the person who's sick. Be ready to confess sin if it need be. It says forgiveness and restoration abounds. God's grace and mercy and love abound. Our salvation is by grace through faith, not of ourselves. And just because you're sick, though, doesn't mean that you're in sin. But it's a part of this passage. And it's a part of what we're studying through. And there's also truth to the fact that sin is a problem when it comes to prayer. If you wanted to... uh, Boy, I might pass my time. John 9. um, I guess I want to just go through a couple because there's a hindrance to prayer. Boy, there was a few of them. Uh, I didn't realize how time got away from me. How about we go to Proverbs 28, 9, and 13. It says in um, 28... Verse 9, it says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. But then in 13, it says, He who covers sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. In 1 John 1, we can do that one as well. 1 John 1, nine. Uh, it says, if we confess our sins, picking up on what Proverbs said, it says he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Not only that, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have, and what uh, James is talking about as well, is, well, if there's sin, then confess it. Now, Matthew 13, verse 15, the Lord talks about those parables and what's preventing and what was prophesied about the Jews at the time that Jesus was there, that in the Pharisees and the leaders and all, what hindered them from hearing was they had dull hearts. They scarcely wanted to hear a thing he said. They closed their eyes because it says, you know, if their eyes were open, they would see and they'd be healed. But the idea is they just didn't want to acknowledge their sin. James talks about the double-minded those who say they're tempted by God, denying their own sinful nature. You know, hearers only, some have little faith, uh, or have a faith that's useless and that cannot save them. Um, If you have a little faith, you can move mountains. Um, So I misspoke there. But some refuse to bridle their tongue, and thus their religion is empty, dishonoring the poor, becoming blasphemers of Jesus' name. Those judge each other, becoming transgressors, transgressors themselves they don't show mercy they're seeking to be friends with the world and becoming enemies of god they're full of pride they're fighting they're quarreling full of bitter envy and jealousy they're not doing what they know to do which is sin they're pursuing riches to the point of cheating workers and killing the righteous many believers had strayed from the truth and they still do to this day and so what is it that he says is going on well they're deceiving themselves first of all how who god is uh, they're deceiving themselves about being doers of the word, not just hearers only. They're forgetting what kind of person they are, who they are. They're deceiving their own hearts because they just have a religion and they're not even able to bridle their tongue. And he says such religion is, is empty. And it says they're lying against the truth. Why? Because they're keeping bitter envy and self-seeking in their hearts. This is what James is talking about. 
But the reason James wrote in our final couple of verses, 19 and 20, we have the reason, and any time we study a book in the Bible, we should always try and find for context what's the reason they wrote the book. And here we see James finally saying, but if, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and clearly we talked about how they were, they were being straying away from the truth, and someone turns him back, well, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What's James' real reason for writing? Well, chapter 1, that they receive that crown of life. They let the implanted word save souls. Um, they be heirs, that they be heirs to the kingdom, and that they be a, a friend of God and not an enemy of God, that they make peace, they sow to righteousness in peace, and they draw near to God, that they do what they know they're supposed to do, what they've been given to do, and that they would be raised up, they would be restored they would be forgiven, that they would be healed. But in verse 20, well, it's to turn them from the error. He wrote this book. They had all these issues going on. And there were some that were cheerful. They knew it. They knew they had repenting to do. They came to the Lord. They sing. And um, and it says, you know, can anybody do this? Well, yeah. You and I can bring truth of God's word to a situation, to somebody's life, and turn them. You know, if if you see somebody in a mess like that and they're they're looking helpless, well, bring the word to that situation, just like James brought the word, and watch how that can turn someone back to the Lord. You know, bring the truth. Let their eyes get back on Jesus. And what's the result at the end of the book of James? Well, they're saved from death, and it covers a multitude of sin. And that being saved from death might be after they were sick to death, they were saved up raised up again, but it also means, you know, to turn to the Lord away from your sin is also saving you from eternal death, those that remain in their sins. The results, saved by grace through faith, a real faith that bears the fruit of good works as we abide in Jesus, and our hearts that are established in the word, our hearts that are established in grace, more than anything, looking for the coming of the Lord is what he talks about, be established Be patient. He's coming. Amen? So, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for all you do in our lives. Lord, we do pray that you would come quickly. And, Lord, we do pray that you'd keep our hearts established, keep our hearts firm in your word, hanging on to it, and not letting anything steal it out, tempt it, and... uh, Choke it out, Lord. We just ask that you'd be with us and continue to keep us till you come. In Jesus' name, amen.